You can't seriously be thinking of using this man. He's dangerous, a menace, a loose cannon, a walking time bomb. Most of all, he is gun happy. Where do you get off saying that? You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man, a.k.a. Joey Mancuso, and tonight is a special episode titled One Nation Under Guns, America's Obsession with the Second Amendment. As the title suggests, tonight's show will be focused on the uncomfortable but unavoidably important topics of gun violence and gun rights in America. In an episode of PBS NewsHour released on December 21st of 2012, liberal commentator Mark Shields stated... Since Robert Kennedy died in the Ambassador Hotel on June 4th, 1968, more Americans have died from gunfire than died in all the wars of this country's history. The statement was later fact-checked by Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times on August 26th, 2015, and again by PolitiFact columnist Louis Jacobson the following day and determined to be true. According to a survey released by the Pew Research Center on June 22, 2017, about 40% of Americans say they own a gun or live in a household with one. This statistic parallels another from a small arms survey, which found that despite the United States only accounting for 4.4% of the world's population, it accounts for 42% of civilian-owned guns worldwide. In 2016 alone, there were more than 11,000 deaths involving murder or manslaughter with a firearm in 2016. This excludes numbers such as so-called justifiable homicides, in which case police officers are acquitted of charges after shooting and killing a suspect. Data compiled by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that states with a higher concentration of firearms per capita have higher gun death counts. And despite that the definition of a mass shooting varies from source to source based on circumstances, one thing is for certain. Mass shootings are more frequent in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Before delving into the topic of gun legislation, it is worth noting that many who oppose stricter gun laws cite a, quote, looming mental health crisis, unquote, as the root cause of the recent upswing of mass shootings in the United States. After all, the Second Amendment was added to the Constitution as part of the Bill of Rights in 1791, meaning it has been in place for roughly 227 years. Are recent events less a reflection of the dangers of guns and more a reflection of a collectively deteriorating mental state? It's hard to say. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, fewer than 5% of 120,000 gun deaths between 2001 and 2010 were perpetrated by individuals with a mental health diagnosis. A database compiled by the Stanford Geospatial Center places the numbers higher at about 15%, 11% of whom had paranoid schizophrenia. A criminologist by the name of James Allen Fox, who contributed to the Stanford Geospatial Center study, later concluded in a paper published by the journal Homicide Studies that externalized blame is far more of a motivating factor for shooters than diagnosable mental health disorders. Mr. Fox stated, Revenge motivation is by far the most commonplace. Mass murderers often see themselves as victims, victims of injustice. They seek payback for what they perceive to be unfair treatment by targeting those they hold responsible for their misfortunes. Most often, the ones to be punished are family members, e.g. an unfaithful wife and all her children, or co-workers, e.g. an overbearing boss and all his employees. The conundrum for placing blame squarely on mental illness is that much of the general population shares the precursors of a mass shooter— To once again quote Mr. Fox, depression, resentment, social isolation, the tendency to externalize blame, fascination with graphically violent entertainment, and a keen interest in weaponry are traits displayed by millions of Americans. The only clear connection between individual statistics and gun violence in the United States seems to come from the criminal justice system. A study published by the JAMA Network in 1998 revealed that of 5,923 authorized purchasers surveyed, 3,128 had at least one conviction for a misdemeanor offense prior to a legal handgun purchase. The anti-gun group Every Town for Gun Safety produced a study that showed 42% of mass shootings were precipitated by at least one, quote, red flag incident, typically domestic violence against women. Finally, a database compiled by Mother Jones using data collected between 1982 and 2018 shows that 80% of mass shooters, in this case any shooting involving three or more casualties, obtained their firearms legally. 
the National Rifle Association, or NRA for short, has long peddled the notion that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Unfortunately, there is little more than anecdotal evidence to support this claim. A Stanford University study led by law professor John Donahue used data compiled from 1977 to 2014 in an attempt to find a correlation between areas where more Americans carry guns and enhanced public safety with fewer crimes. Contrarily, they discovered that states with so-called right-to-carry laws have actually experienced higher rates of violent crimes than states without them. There is not even the slightest hint in the data that RTC laws reduce overall violent crime, Donahue said. So if so-called mental illness isn't to blame, and more guns actually result in more crime, what is the solution? We'll be right back. tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man. Back to the topic at hand. Staunch gun rights activists frequently cite Chicago as the standalone example that strict gun laws do nothing to stem gun-related violence. After all, on July 9th of 2014, Donald J. Trump tweeted, the most stringent gun laws in the U.S. happen to be in Chicago, and look what is happening there. Unfortunately for Mr. Trump, that statement is currently false. 
According to a PolitiFact analysis by Matt Dietrich titled Trump No Marksman When Aiming at Chicago Gun Laws posted on November 3rd, 2016, for two years, Chicago did have the toughest gun possession law in the country. In 1982, the city banned possession of handguns by civilians, joining Washington, D.C. in prohibiting handgun possession. But the U.S. Supreme Court's 2008 District of Columbia v. Heller decision ruled the D.C. law unconstitutional, making Chicago the lone holdout among major cities for handgun prohibition. But the Heller decision paved the way for the 2010 McDonald v. City of Chicago decision that extended the Heller decision, which had overturned a law specific to the District of Columbia, to states. That meant Chicago no longer could ban handgun possession. Chicagoans, however, still faced stricter gun laws than residents of other major cities because Illinois was alone among states in not allowing concealed carry of firearms. Illinois became the last state in the nation to adopt concealed carry in July 2013, eight months after the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the state's ban on concealed carry was unconstitutional. With that, Chicago lost its status, or its stigma depending on your perspective, of having the strictest gun possession laws in the United States. Incomparably sized cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, the city administers the concealed carry permitting process. In Illinois, the Illinois State Police processes applications, so it could be argued that Chicago has less autonomy in restricting concealed carry within its borders than do other cities. But it also knocks Illinois for not requiring registration of firearms, for its lack of restriction on the purchase of multiple firearms, and for not allowing local jurisdictions to regulate firearms. In other words, Illinois could make its gun laws much more strict than they are, unquote. Ironically, Business Insider published an article titled The 28 Safest American Cities to Live In on December 1, 2017, listing Naperville, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, as the number one safest city in America. Chicago certainly has an undeniable problem with gun crime, as do many other major cities. But where are the guns coming from? In 2017, the office of Mayor Rahm Emanuel revealed that most guns recovered by law enforcement in Chicago came from outside of the state of Illinois. The report revealed that only 40% of the guns recovered were actually purchased in Illinois. Many were purchased in Indiana, Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Texas. An earlier report, released in 2014 from the Chicago Police Department, concluded that nearly 60% of the guns recovered and traced between 2009 and 2013 came from a neighboring state with lenient gun laws. Similar results can be seen in New York City, where 9 in 10 firearms are obtained outside of the state of New York. In an article published by Philip Bump in the Washington Post on November 7, 2017, titled, Where the Guns Used in Chicago Actually Came From?, Columnist Philip Bump closed his report by saying, inadvertently, Trump is undercutting his own point. To reduce the number of guns used in crime in Chicago, one can argue you'd need to implement tougher gun laws nationally to cut down on the number brought into the city. In short, a large percentage of gun violence is not technically originating from the states in which the guns are used, but the neighboring red states with incredibly lax gun laws that provide them, and many of the statements made about cities and states possessing the, quote, strictest gun laws in the country are erroneous. So what can be said in favor of the elephant in the room, so-called gun control? Well, in order to better understand gun control, one must first be made aware of what the laws currently in place to restrict firearm purchases actually are and their overall efficacy. Approximately one in five gun purchases are done without a background check, a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine concluded in 2017. These statistics largely stem from purchases made online, the so-called gun show loophole, and merchants and dealers who simply choose not to carry out a background check. This latest study replaces a similar one released in 1994 that determined 40% of guns were purchased without a background check, which might suggest that increased enforcement has resulted in a significant reduction in guns purchased without the intervention of state and or federal law. What exactly is a background check? Well, firearm background checks are conducted exclusively by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives using a form called an ATF Form 4473. Nationwide gun sales are not tracked by the federal government, which makes collecting reliable data difficult at times. But the goal of a background check is to determine if a purchaser has ever been convicted of a felony, a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, is an unlawful user of either illegal or legal drugs, including pharmaceuticals, a fugitive, or has ever been committed to a mental institution. Purchasers are expected to answer the questions on the form honestly, but many often lie. 
Due to the strict three-day deadline, the FBI is often forced to reference and process background checks against their databases at a rapid pace. Unfortunately, like most things, the system is fallible, and criminal records don't always show up in the reference search. In cases where a background check is not denied but simply cannot be processed, a dealer will often just sell the firearm anyway. Only gun sellers who possess a license from the federal government are required to carry out background checks, but this doesn't necessarily mean every private purchase in which a background check isn't run is an illegal purchase. The aforementioned gun show loophole and many online retailers are noteworthy examples. Nicholas Cruz, the 19-year-old gunman who shot and killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, legally purchased the AR-15 he used to carry out the shooting. Despite that the Florida Department of Children and Families was called on to investigate Cruz after a series of alarming Snapchat videos, including one depicting cuts on his arms and a verbal expression of interest in buying a gun, the department determined that he was not a risk to himself and others. On February 16, 2018, just two days after the Florida shooting, the New York Times revealed that the FBI had received a tip from someone close to Cruz that he already owned a gun and was talking about committing a mass shooting. The FBI acknowledged that they failed to investigate the tip. Two instances where Cruz could have been prevented from killing 17 high school students failed due to a lack of consistency and efficacy in the justice system surrounding the regulation of firearms. On the morning of February 18, 2018, President Trump blamed the FBI not following up on the anonymous tip on the Mueller investigation. Trump's tweet read, Very sad that the FBI missed all of the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. We are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. Get back to the basics and make us all proud. Anyway, Cruz's story is not a unique one. A psychiatrist at the University of Colorado contacted the school's threat assessment team about James Holmes, the 24-year-old who killed 12 people and injured 70 others when he opened fire in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado on July 20, 2012. Nothing was done, and therefore nothing stood between Holmes and the legal purchase of his firearms. The Virginia Tech shooter who killed 32 and wounded 17 others in April of 2007 had a documented history of mental illness and was able to purchase his firearm legally. Luckily, in his case, it actually resulted in legislation. Radcliffe Houghton, a 45-year-old ex-Marine who killed his wife and two others before killing himself in Brooklyn, Wisconsin, would not have passed a background check but didn't need to as he obtained his weapon online from a private seller. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were able to purchase three of their guns with cash at a gun show with the assistance of an 18-year-old friend as the legal age to purchase a firearm is 18. The fourth gun was purchased privately from a seller who also obtained their weapon from a gun show. What can be done about this? Well, closing the gun show loophole would be a great start. Actually, enforcing current laws would be another, as would tighter regulations on private sellers. Raising the gun age to 21 instead of selling to teenagers would probably make a difference as well. But there is a much broader and more immediate solution. The National Rifle Association has spent approximately $37 million against Democrats and approximately $17 million in favor of Republicans. In their entire history, they've only paid a total of $265 against a Republican. In total, their independent expenditures amount to $52,583,309. During the 2016 election cycle, the group spent just over $1 million on candidates for federal office. The top five senators with the most contributions from the NRA include John McCain with $7.74 million, Richard Burr with $6.99 million, Roy Blunt with $4.55 million, Tom Tillis with $4.42 million, and Cory Gardner with $3.88 million. The top five representatives are French Hill with $1.09 million, Ken Buck with $800,544, David Young with $707,662, Mike Simpson with $385,731, and Greg Gianforte with $344,630. The NRA spent approximately $19 million against Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. House Speaker Paul Ryan received $5,950 from the NRA. And Mr. Trump himself received approximately $21 million in aid during the election from the NRA, including 9.6 million ads and other pro-Trump materials. Only one party receives massive campaign contributions from the NRA. 
Only one party refuses to address gun violence when it occurs, instead responding with such tropes as thoughts and prayers for the victims and it's too soon to talk about this. Only one party will absolutely, positively, 100% ensure that absolutely nothing changes and the cycle of mass shootings continues. Only one party stands against the 90% of Americans who demand universal background checks. Only one party stands between the United States of America and responsible gun legislation, the Republican Party. When asked by a reporter in a news conference following the Florida shooting, Mr. President, why does this keep happening to America and will you do something about guns? Trump displayed moral cowardice by walking silently out of the room. One survivor of the Florida shooting with the Twitter handle at LongLiveKCX tweeted, Let it be known that Cruz messed with the wrong school. We as students are using social media as a platform to have our voices heard. Let it be known that we are and will be in contact with legislators and politicians. Change is now and it is starting with the survivors. The tweet has received 375,000 likes. Trump's tweet offering prayers and condolences to the victims of the terrible Florida shooting received 170,000. More people support a victim's call to action than the words of the President of the United States of America. I guess that's what happens when only a third of the voting populace actually show up to the polls and you still lose the popular vote by three million people. Or it's what happens when you receive millions of dollars from the NRA, ensuring you'll never do anything about gun violence, and then you tweet empty condolences and everyone can sense that just a couple of days later, you'll probably do something juvenile and embarrassing like post a tweet blaming your own FBI investigation for the deaths of 17 high school students. But as long as it works for your base, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, after all, if you visit the comments section on Fox News right now, you'll see they're all pointing the finger at Mueller for this one, too. Every vote for a Republican is a vote for another mass shooting. We'll be right back. Seven, six, two millimeter. Full metal jacket. Leonard, if Hartman comes in here and catches us, We'll both be in a world of shit. I am in a world of shit. Left shoulder! Right shoulder! Easy, Leonard. 
Another argument frequently presented by people all across the political spectrum is that the criminalization of drugs has been an abject failure and therefore any further restrictions on firearms would result in a similar fallout. But it is worth considering that guns aren't drugs, and this argument is, by all accounts, apples to oranges. Consider the following. According to an article on HowStuffWorks.com by Ed Grabianowski, many gangs exist mainly as a money-making enterprise. By committing thefts and dealing drugs, gang members can make relatively large amounts of money. People who are faced with a lack of money may turn to crime if they can't earn enough with a legitimate job. This partly explains why gangs exist in poor, run-down areas of cities. However, not everyone who is poor joins a gang, and not every gang member is poor. It stands to reason that a large percentage of the income of gangs, including Donald J. Trump's favorite gang, MS-13, accrue a sizable portion of their income through the sale of illegal drugs. Therefore, it stands that the decriminalization of drugs would largely remove their incentive to possess firearms in the first place. Portugal decriminalized drugs in 2001, and since then they've seen their HIV cases plummet from approximately 1,400 in the year 2000 to just 400 in 2006. They've seen a 66% reduction in court cases, with a 20% increase in effective treatment rates. While many predicted a spike in drug usage, the statistics actually went down. According to an article first aired on NPR's Morning Edition, sociologist Nuno Capaz stated, It's cheaper to treat people than to incarcerate them. In the same NPR article, it is mentioned that Portugal's drug rates have dropped 75% since the 1990s. Contrast this with gun statistics, where every study has come to the same conclusion, that more guns equal more gun violence. Again, apples to oranges. Another major source of revenue for gangs is prostitution, and similar statistics can be seen in the criminalization versus legalization of prostitution as with drugs. According to a study produced by UCLA, when Rhode Island decriminalized prostitution between 2003 and 2009, the state saw a 31% decline in instances of rape and STD diagnoses. Almost identical results were discovered in a study produced by the ISA Institute in the Netherlands, with rape and sexual assault statistics dropping 30-40%. to 40%. These aren't guns. These are incentives to own guns. But many American gun owners see statistics as benign and would rather cling to the notion that nothing should be done about guns because fewer guns would make the general public more susceptible to authoritarian rule. After all, Thomas Jefferson said, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. But he also talked about the importance for the country to adapt when he said, I am not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions change, with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him when a boy, as a civilized society, to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. It is no mystery to anyone that the Founding Fathers were very adamant in their beliefs that everyone should have the right to own a gun. But in 1791, they were referring to muskets, which could take anywhere from 20 seconds to one minute to load and prepare for firing. This played a role in the military line of formation and the organized, calculated, formal style of battles fought at the time. A semi-automatic AR-15, on the other hand, can fire as many times as the user can pull the trigger, and the average automatic weapon fires 500 to 600 rounds per minute. Far be it from them to be able to kill one person in a minute versus potentially being able to kill hundreds within the same amount of time. The Founding Fathers also certainly never could have predicted that the Manhattan Project would detonate the first atomic bomb at the Trinity site in New Mexico in 1945, forever changing the face of war and potentially preventing ground combat casualties from ever climbing into the millions again. Meanwhile, as mentioned previously in the show, gun-related deaths stateside have exceeded all gun combat-related deaths collectively. Americans aren't dying from tyranny. They're dying from the reckless proliferation of guns. You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. We'll be right back. Russia and I do have a relationship with 
regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Thomas Jefferson, 1791. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. No, they say, Trump, we love you too. Trump's voters are by far, you know, the, uh, I'm at 68, 69%. I'm at 90% total. Like, will you say absolutely? I think it's 68 or 69%. Will you most likely stay? That gets into the 90s. Other guys are like at 10. A guy like Jeb Bush, he has a nobody, but he's like at, at not, I mean, like, they don't have people. They have nothing. Uh, Rubio, soft. They're all, all soft. All soft. The following is an excerpt from an article published by Devin Hughes on the blog Armed with Reason on September 18th, 2013. Quote, It is worth noting at the outset that this fear of tyranny suddenly arising belies a fundamental misreading of how authoritarian regimes actually come to power. Namely, it assumes a false dichotomy between the people on one side and the government on the other. Government is not some foreign entity imposed on the people which would only arise from a foreign country conquering the United States. Not going to happen. Rather, democratic government is derived from the people. A tyrannical government could only arise in the U.S. with a majority of the population supporting it due to some economic or military crisis. In reaction, say, to a heavily armed minority attempting to enforce its will on the rest of the country. 
Government does not just suddenly become tyrannical, end quote. Is Devin Hughes correct? Well, his implication that a foreign country could never conquer the United States is reliant on an assumption, not a fact. And given that the article was written in 2013, well before an estimated 126 million people were influenced by approximately 80,000 Russian bots and trolls during the 2016 election, according to the Washington Post, it's clear that Hughes' argument wasn't able to take into account foreign cyber influence and the effects it could have in terms of sowing discord, division, and ultimately chaos within a democracy. However, cyber warfare is not the same as physically storming the gates. There are currently several active militias, also referred to as paramilitary organizations, within the United States. In a study titled Camouflage and Conspiracy, the militia movement from Ruby Ridge to Y2K, led by former head of the Anti-Defamation League Mark Pitcavage, and published by American Behavioral Scientist in 2001, Pitcavage described the so-called militia movement. Quote, the militia movement is a right-wing movement that arose following controversial standoffs in the 1990s. It inherited paramilitary traditions of earlier groups, especially the conspiratorial anti-government posse comitatus. The militia movement claims that militia groups are sanctioned by law but uncontrolled by government. In fact, they are designed to oppose a tyrannical government. The movement's ideology has led some adherents to commit criminal acts, including stockpiling illegal weapons and explosives and plotting to destroy buildings or assassinate public officials, as well as lesser confrontations. End quote. Many so-called militias align themselves with Confederate ideologies, including the Three Percenters, who viewed the rebellion of the Confederates as synonymous with the Revolutionary War. On January 5th, 2016, Spencer Sunshine posted an article for Political Research Associates in which this was said about the co-founder of the Three Percenters. Quote, Three Percenter co-founder Mike Vanderbo is well known for his violent rhetoric. In 2010, he called for the breaking the windows of Democratic Party offices, and a slew of such attacks followed. He called for armed resistance to Obamacare and has published personal information about the families of legislators who voted for gun control measures. At the 2015 Salem, Oregon rally against state gun control legislation, he threatened civil war, as he did at the Bundy Ranch, as a response to the new laws. He also called Oregon Governor Kate Brown and others in the state government tyrants and domestic enemies of the Constitution, before saying this country has long had a remedy of tyrants, a Second Amendment remedy. So be careful what you wish for, madam. You may get it. End quote. Timothy McVeigh, the domestic terrorist who killed 168 people and injured 680 others when he and Terry Nichols bombed the Alfred P. Murrah building in downtown Oklahoma City in 1995, had visited with the Michigan militia prior to the attack. He outlined his motives for the attack in a three-page letter. In his own words, McVeigh wrote, I chose to bomb a federal building because such an action served more purpose than other options. Foremost, the bombing was a retaliatory strike a counterattack for the cumulative raids and subsequent violence and damage that federal agents had participated in over the preceding years, including but not limited to Waco. From the formation of such units as the FBI's hostage rescue and other assault teams amongst federal agencies during the 80s, culminating in the Waco incident, federal actions grew increasingly militaristic and violent to the point where at Waco, our government, like the Chinese, was deploying tanks against its own citizens. Dylan Roof, the white supremacist and mass murderer who shot and killed nine people during a church service in Charleston, South Carolina, was seen in a picture brandishing a handgun and posing in front of a Confederate flag. It is worth noting that Roof obtained the gun he used to carry out the shooting legally due to a lapse in the FBI's federal background check system. Are right-wing paramilitary groups fostering domestic terrorists in a country where federal checks on deadly firearms are falling short of goals that could be set higher and certainly better enforced? Many of these people who carry out these murders see themselves as fighting for the greater good. All these victims, just collateral damage. Maybe, in their minds, catching a bullet to the back of the head while walking to second period is just one of the many speed bumps toward making America great again. Can you hear me, Morpheus? I'm going to be honest with you. I hate this place, this zoo, this prison, this 
reality, whatever you want to call it, I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it. I can taste your stink. Every time I do, I fear that I've somehow been infected by it. It's repulsive, isn't it? I must get out of here. I must get free. And in this mind is the key, my key. Once Zion is destroyed, there is no need for me to be here. Do you understand? I need the codes. I have to get inside Zion. And you have to tell me how. You're going to tell me, or you're going to die. Please remove any metallic items you're carrying, keys, boost change. Holy shit! Perhaps the media, films such as The Matrix, where Neo tumbles down the rabbit hole to discover the entire world around him is a falsified prison of the mind, are fueling a dichotomous sense that the everyman sitting at home with their AR-15 is all that stands between true freedom and utter tyranny. After all, the Germans helped to pioneer the concept of the assault rifle during World War II, and it wasn't until the turn of the 21st century that the United States saw a dramatic upswing in mass shootings. There might be evidence to support the theory that violent media is cultivating a more violent society. In an article on Psychology Today by Brad J. Bushman, Ph.D., Dr. Bushman stated, We recently conducted a comprehensive review of 136 articles reporting 381 effects involving over 130,000 participants from around the world. These studies show that violent video games increase aggressive thoughts, angry feelings, psychological arousal, e.g. heart rate, blood pressure, and aggressive behavior. Violent games also decrease helping behavior and feelings of empathy for others. The effects occurred for males and females of all ages, regardless of what country they lived in. Other evidence dates back to 1957. Psychologists George Comstock and Hei-Jung Pike used data collected between 1957 and 2000 and found that the short-term effect of exposure to violent media on actual physical violence was measurable. But few on the so-called left suggest that regulating media would be more reasonable than regulating firearms. And why should they? Regulating media would require checks on everything from film to broadcast television to video games and even to music. But it doesn't mean that many on the so-called right haven't tried. Senator Joe Lieberman has been calling for a ban on violent video games since the 90s, though his positions have been tamed by the application of the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or ESRB's, E through M rating system. Which would be more tyrannical? Regulating the information and entertainment widely available to the American public, or regulating the tools with which people potentially attempt to emulate what they're being exposed to? How many different angles can this issue be approached from? When approached from the stance of shifting the focus to mental illness, the water gets muddy and subjective. Republicans are already trying to pin the blame on mental health, and their approach sounds highly draconian, involving more attention being placed on people who display distress on social media. Could this be a slippery slope? Could such a focus be used to pass legislation that ultimately silences dissent? And what of the media? Should the United States follow in the footsteps of China and begin inconsistently banning books and films? There seems to be a pervasive fear of communism and Sharia law, both systems under which everything from entertainment to fashion are highly regulated. Or maybe the war on drugs and crime should just be ramped up further despite any tangible evidence to suggest that it's working. Or maybe, just maybe, the United States should focus on the elephant in the room that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The guns themselves. We'll be right back. If you come stepping with the wrong attitude 
boy, am I glad that libtard's done talking. Listen up here, y'all. I'm new here at KUHS. Name's Buck Winchester, conservative correspondent. And I'm here to set the record straight, y'all. Listen up, Joe Man, if that is your real name. I think I speak on behest of all the listeners here at KUHS when I say, God damn, you're one crybaby snowflake, you know that? Go change your diaper, snowflake. Don't you forget the safety pins now. (sighs) Anyway, yeah, let's shift this in the right direction, y'all. They don't call us the right for nothing. Let me pose a little scenario here for you, all right? Let's say, supposedly, I'm sitting in my house listening to some Kenny Chesney polishing my AR-15 like any good God-fearing American when suddenly uh, there's a rap-tap-tap on my door. So I open the door, and to my surprise, I got me a bunch of deep state feds on my porch, you know, with the jackets that say FED on the back, military-grade M16s, night vision goggles like Splinter Cell, the works. And they say, sorry, sir, you're going to have to hand over that AR-15. Now, what are you supposing I'm going to do in a situation like that? You think I'm going to start crying, put my AR on the floor, and say, You're right, please don't shoot me. Guns are bad. There's a butt plug in my ass right now. Hell no. I'm going to stand up like a man, like John McClane stood up to Hans Gruber when that Nakatomi shit went down, and I'm going to take every one of their asses out. I do it in Call of Duty. I do it in Grand Theft Auto. I've done it a thousand times. That is what America's all about. Now, I might be paragliding a little here, but I do recall that it was a little man by the name of Thomas Jefferson who said, guns are our best defense against trannies. Now, I don't think he knew how bad the trannies were going to get, but I think what he was trying to say was that we need our guns for our freedom. And that's why I support our president, the greatest president in a thousand years, Donald J. Trump. He knows what freedom's all about. He speaks for all the people, not just some of the people like you libtards do. You see, if a fellow wants to walk down the street wearing a swastika, that's his God-given right. He wants to wear a hood with little holes in it, he should have the right. And if a teacher wants to walk into a classroom with a Glock in their belt, well, shit, he should have the right, too. I mean, think about it. These kids, (laughs) they're never going to get a better education than that. The second they start mouthing off, kaplow! No more class clowns. Make America great again! All right, y'all, that's all the time I got. Be sure to tune in to, well, I guess if you want, be sure to tune into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here at KUHSDenver.com. Good night. Hi, I'm Joe Man of The Joe Man Show here on KUHS Denver. The Joe Man Show and KUHS are sponsored in part by our friends Bluebird Botanicals. Bluebird believes that everyone of every demographic deserves the opportunity to take their health and wellness back into their own hands. If you're not familiar with CBD oil, it's a nutritional supplement made from hemp that's been sweeping the nation. Bluebird Botanicals was one of the first companies to start selling this amazing product back in 2013, and since then, they've become one of the leaders of the hemp extract industry. In fact, just last year, they won the award for the number one hemp CBD company by the critically acclaimed publication, The Cannabis. Bluebird Botanicals' success is largely due to the passion and care they feel for the industry, their customers, and the world. They support pro-cannabis legislation at the state and national level and are always working to reduce their carbon footprint to lead us to a greener world, literally and figuratively. Bluebird genuinely believes in the benefits that hemp can bring to you, and they've made it their mission to get it into your hands any way they can, which is why they offer substantial assistance discounts to veterans, those with long-term disabilities, and folks who live below the poverty line. Give them a ring at 720-726-5132. Again, that's 720-726-5132. Or visit them on the web at buybluebird.com. That's B-U-Y bluebird.com. They're happy to answer any questions you might have, and you never have to worry about pitches or pressuring salespeople. Once more, you can contact Bluebird at 720-726-5132 or online at buybluebird.com. This is Joe Man of the Joe Man Show here on KUHS Denver, and you can catch us every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time at kuhsdenver.com.